guess we can get started then. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, if you're, you're new, uh, understand that our custom here is that we go through the scriptures line by line, one verse at a time, not backwards but forward, and a book at a time. And um, yeah, we're currently in the book of Hebrews. And for everybody here this morning, welcome to Hebrews chapter 12. Okay. Um, I've, I enjoyed Hebrews chapter 11, but um, <clears throat> here in Hebrews chapter 12, the author transitions from doctrine to exhortation, from theology uh, to application, all right, for instruction on how to live the Christian life. Of course, chapter 11 was the really kind of the, the, the long transition, the introduction to uh, the exhortation that he's about to bring in this chapter, uh, and it was meant to be an encouragement to this group of persecuted Jewish believers, okay? But the instruction in its details doesn't really begin until now, chapter 12, where there are some 14 or so exhortations and imperatives, and imperatives are directives. They are commands in the scripture, and some of them are in, in the imperative form, some of them uh, more of an exhortation. We'll look at all of those. Um, but before we dive into chapter 12 itself, I want to make sure that our minds are still in the flow of the context, which is absolutely essential to the author's objective. And I would say that one of the great hindrances to keeping our minds tracking with the context are chapter breaks. How many of you discovered that chapter breaks can uh, divert you from what the author is trying to do? And, uh, and it's nice to have chapter breaks and verses so you can locate things, but sometimes it's not good where they're placed just because of what it does. How many of you guys have seen the animation Up? I hated it the first time I saw it because it's so sad. Uh, but anyway, I've gotten over that. I just fast forward to the little boy standing at the old man's door and everything is just fine. But uh, you remember the, the dog that uh, gets distracted um, every time he thinks he sees a squirrel. You know, the conversation is going along just fine and then he abruptly says squirrel and he turns his head and then he comes back to the conversation. Everybody has to regroup their thoughts and, uh, and come back to the barbecue. And that's, yeah, chapter breaks in the Bible are like squirrels, and they derail our minds from the context and the flow of what the author's trying to communicate. And if we fail to regain the author's thoughts, we might, or rather even have a tendency to assign accidentally kind of a foreign context that strays greatly from what the author wants to accomplish. So let's regather the author's thoughts from chapter 11 which will really keep us in check. Uh, our primary concern is Hebrews 11, verse 39 and 40, which reads this way. All these, speaking of all the, the people that he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So all of the Old Testament people of faith mentioned in chapter 11, he says they were commended for their faith, 
but they did not receive or rather experience the promise of God that would have made them perfect. They didn't receive that or experience it. And the promise that was made to them but they did not experience really was Jesus himself who did not come until after all of those people were dead. And so without Christ coming, dying for sin and rising from the dead, their old covenant faith could not bring them to this place of perfection or completion, as we'll talk about in a bit. The author says that God provided something better for the new covenant believer so that the old covenant believer would not be made perfect apart from us, apart from us, okay? So perfection is only realized or experienced through Jesus. And it is the perfection of the believer that the author has closed chapter 11 with, and it's the believer's perfection that is the scope of chapter 12. That is the scope, okay? Uh, The author is going to explain how the believer is made perfect through Christ. Now, it's important to point out from verse 40 of chapter 11 that the believer is made perfect by someone other than himself. They are being made perfect, okay? We participate in the work, but as we'll see, it's Christ who actually perfects us. In Hebrews 12, 3, Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. The word finisher is perfecter, and it's the same Greek word found in chapter 11, verse 40. It's just in a different form, okay? So the believers made perfect by the perfecter who is Christ Jesus, And chapter 12 explains how he accomplishes that perfection. And as we're going to see, it's rarely enjoyable. It does not fit into the Western idea of how we think we ought to be perfected. Okay, And uh, it creates, I think, a wrestling match in our mind. But it's the way that God does things. It's the way that he's always done things. And just because you live on this continent, in this culture, it will not change the way God does things. Okay. But we're not going to get there today. I'm going to offend you in a totally different way. <laughs> now, real quick, before we get into the perfecting of the saint, I want to actually revisit the word perfect uh, so no one gets the wrong idea. By the word perfection, the author does not mean moral sinlessness or sinless perfection. He does not mean flawless. Okay, the word means to bring something to completion. It means to finish something, a task or a project. Uh, Jesus often spoke of finishing the work that his father sent him to do. That is, he came to perfect the work. He, he began, he came to complete it. And he was speaking of miracles, teaching, and most of all, his death and his resurrection. He does that in John 4, Verse 34, John 5, verse 36. Uh, the word is used to speak of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, John 19, 28. Uh, Paul spoke of finishing his journey in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So it tells of a finished product or task that has been made complete. It's the same Greek word in all of those passages, and it's never used to describe something that is flawless spotless or without defect. In fact, the word itself really has no moral implications at all, though the results for us will always end up being moral when Christ is 
conforming us to his perfect image. So the Old Testament believer, while they could strive to be this finished product, they could not attain it because Christ had not yet come to came and performed the work that could accomplish that for them. You remember the author in Hebrews, he made this plain in chapter 7, verse 19, when he said, for the law made nothing and no one perfect. Okay. No amount of obedience to the law could bring a person to this finished product. Paul says the same thing in Romans 3, verse 20 and 21. The author of Hebrews said that this also was the case with the Old Testament sacrifices, saying those sacrifices which they offered continually year after year could never make the worshiper perfect. Chapter 10, verse 1. So neither the law nor the sacrifices were sufficient to perfect the believer. So is Paul, uh, not Paul, maybe Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews um, says that God provided something better. He provided his son, the perfecter. Okay, so... It's not something we do in obedience to the law. It's not something we offer on an altar. It has everything to do with the relationship with the one that can actually accomplish what we need because you and I just, obviously, we can't do it. Amen? We don't need a little help. We need insurmountable help. That's right. And something that I think is important to point out in all of this because the word perfect that we're talking about, the author of Hebrews uses it more than anybody else in scripture. But he also applies it to Jesus in some interesting ways that cause us to wrestle in our minds. He frequently made reference to Jesus being made perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, uh, chapter 5 verse 9 in chapter 7, verse 28. Now, it's not that Jesus lacked anything in his moral purity or his sinless perfection, but as a man, being born as a baby, being raised in this world, okay, he was lacking experience. Life, he was gaining experience through life, through which the author says he was made perfect for our sake, so that he become the pioneer or the captain of our salvation. He had to be made perfect, and he learned that through obedience, experientially so. So here is the, the thing. If God was interested in perfecting his son, whose image that he wants us to reflect, then our perfection for his glory is his great humanitarian effort. That's his priority. Okay. And uh, so that is what chapter 12 is about perfecting the saint and uh, bringing us to that place of completion where he is pleased with what he finds. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 from the New King James Version. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this mystery, Lord, of the incarnation, and that in your wisdom, you subjected your son to so many different things in his experience and suffering, and, and he, he endured all of it for our sake. And we're to look to him and to see him in all of that, and then we're to run to him. And so, Lord, this morning we want to talk about being good runners. And so help us through the text. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be rebuked. Help us to, to gain conviction in areas of our life that you've probably already been speaking to us about. And confirm it in our hearts this morning and help us by your grace to take action accordingly. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, well, the author, he immediately draws our attention to the imagery of the Olympic Games, specifically the long-distance foot race, something of a marathon. And the setting is a, a massive stadium with its multi-leveled seating. In the audience is the multitude of Old Testament believers, here called a cloud of witnesses in verse 1, who've already run their race and can testify to the need of faith for endurance, especially through heartache, persecution, and martyrdom, as the end of our chapter last week pointed out. But they are not quiet. They're not a quiet or passive, docile audience. They're standing, they're shouting, they're cheering for those on the track, encouraging them to run hard, to run fast, and to endure to the end. And on the track, of course, running the long-distance race is the New Testament believer. That's us. Okay. And some of us have been running for quite some time, and others have more recently joined us. Uh, others of us, perhaps, are still at the starting block. And our objective is ultimately the same. It's the finish line, where Christ is seated at what Paul would call the Bema seat, where he waits to reward his people for their race. Now, in this race, we're not actually running against each other, but alongside one another. And how we run together will determine the reward. Yeah, Christianity, rather than an individual sport, is a team sport where every individual has personal responsibility for the sake of everyone else. That's why Paul says we are many members but one body. We're the body of Christ. Therefore, we'll not be judged based upon how much better we did than someone else, but how well we conformed to how Jesus ran. What does Paul say? They, those who compare themselves with themselves are fools. That's right. And the track that we're running on, it's no ordinary track. It's marked with distractions, excuses, disappointment, suffering, heartache, and maybe even death. And as we run, or prepare to run, we notice that we've got some excess baggage, some extra weight that will slow our progress and rob our endurance. 
especially as we look to the finish line that doesn't seem to be yet on the horizon. Now, if you've ever run long distance, it's not long into the run before you realize how nice it would be uh, if you were lighter on your feet, how it would have been nice to shed a few pounds before the race. Okay. Those few extra pounds can be felt in your feet, in your knees, in your back, especially as you start getting older. You can feel it everywhere, and, and you're wondering why in the world you feel running pain in your elbow. <laughs> <laughs> In the military, there were times when we had to run in our combat boots with a loaded rucksack and an M4. Uh, for you civilian type, a rucks well, for you Air Force type, a rucksack <laughs> is a... Uh, it's a backpack. M4 is a rifle. And you get about 10 feet into the run, and you start appreciating the days when you ran in, you know gym clothes or whatever. Do you also know that you could run a lot better, faster, and farther if you didn't have all the extra weight, okay? All the extra weight to run weightless and pain-free. The author says that for the Christian race, we should lay aside every weight which so easily ensnares us. Okay, he also mentions sins, but we're going to save that for a whole nother Sunday. Okay. Yeah. The weight is distinguished from sin to suggest that it's not something sinful in itself. can become sin, but the thing in itself is not sinful. This weight is not something forbidden in the Scriptures, but it's something that hinders the believer's progress. It, it weakens our endurance and stifles our stamina. Okay. Because of this weight, the believer is not as effective. He's not as fruitful as he should be. And because this weight is unspecified, we shouldn't think the author has something specific in mind, but potentially anything in mind. Potentially anything. It's, it's unspecified to make it applicable to as many things as possible. Don't you hate that? Be specific so it doesn't include me. We live our lives that way, don't we? Unless it's some benefit. Yeah. Weight is anything that is not sinful in itself that hinders us from just running for the glory of God. Yeah. This is a necessary discussion because we have a tendency to think that anything not forbidden in Scripture is harmless. That it's just harmless. And that's, if you live in a fairy tale, that would probably work. But it's just not the case. The truth is, it's the things with no moral significance that is what cripples us. Okay. If an object or activity has no moral value in itself, but nonetheless draws your affection, it could just end up being the most deceptive thing that there is for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like low-hanging fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Yeah? There are many things in this life that are not sinful or forbidden by God, but our participation in them at the exclusion or the diminishing of Christian duty becomes sin for us. Okay? When that happens, the author, under the Holy Spirit's direction, he instructs us to identify those things. Maybe identified by someone else. 
and then to have those things laid aside. It's funny, the ancient Olympic runners, they basically ran naked. Now, at this point, we stray from any literal interpretation, okay? <laughs> Keep your shirt on. We're in a moral and spiritual race. So what weight are you packing around that keeps you from your Christian duty? without which you could better glorify God and be a benefit to others. So what habit cripples you? What habit cripples you? What, what hobby distracts you? What convenience weakens you? What excuse hampers you? What relationship hinders you? So I want to entertain some possibilities. Uh, I'm going to start with fathers, um, and it's fair because I am one. And uh, I've been around the block a few times. I know a few fathers, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, I, so I think it's a good discussion. I don't have a particular father in mind. It's just a generalization. If it applies, be a man and own it. Is that fair? I know in our culture we've emasculated our men, and, and they're more sissies than anything, but I'm calling the men to man up to what it is own it, and just let's deal with it. Ladies, what do you think about that? I knew there were still ladies out there. Yeah. When you get off work, is your regular habit to come home, eat dinner, and plop down in front of the TV? Or do you grab the dinner on the way to the TV, and you stay there until bedtime? Or you go to the shop, and you build or you repair something while your wife continues to serve you and your children languish spiritually without your attention and your biblical instruction. Now, I could insert a thousand things in there. The point is, what is drawing you away from your husband and fatherly duties? Yeah, rather than turning off the TV or laying aside a project, you've set aside your sacred trust and responsibility of bringing your children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4. How we wish that that verse spoke to our wives. It does not. Okay, fathers. And I don't want you to misunderstand. I, I, I didn't say watching appropriate material on TV is sinful in and of itself. But when watching TV is at the expense of your children's discipleship, it's not just a waste of your time, it's a gross misuse of your time, which transforms an innocent activity into a shameful one. Now, neither did I say there is never a time to work in your shop. We love our shop. Just many of us need to take our children with us to the shop. Okay. I mean, I know the oil needs to be changed, which I never do anymore. My truck takes 11 quarts tendonitis doing that. It's almost as cheap to have somebody do it, but there, there is no justification for a father hiding out or hiding from the tasks that he has as a father. Nothing. And, and now I think I can hear the murmuring at this point, how tired you are when you get home from work, but I want you to understand, I know men in some of the most physically and mentally exhausting jobs out there, and yet 
when they get home, they give their family everything they've got. They rest for a bit, they get their second wind, and they give it all to their family. Now, I understand there are days where you are wrecked and you, you need to just go down and rest. And it would be better for your family if you did. But that is not, cannot be the regular habit of the Christian father. It just can't be that way. Yeah. I know men that work so hard, but what they have is they hold the biblical conviction that they are not just the breadwinner, but they are primarily the trainer and nurturer of the children and the lover of their wife. I'm always mystified by this. When people go to work, they drive their vehicle like they stole it. But when they come home, they obey all the speed limit signs. Why is that? Do we fear God more than man? Seems like if we're going to break the speed limit, we should be on the way home to see our family. Amen? I, now, I did not encourage anybody to break the speed limit. <laughs> I'm just saying, hypothetically. Yeah. There's also something else I understand in this whole issue is that because of a lack of instruction from one generation to another and because of some failure in the church and the pastorate, fathers are ill-equipped and they're lacking instruction in the realm of Christian fatherhood. Many fathers just don't know. Now, I think that helps explain things, but it doesn't really justify every father's personal responsibility to study the scriptures, to know what God has said about a dad about a husband. There's lots of things. You know, I've, it's interesting in parenting, you know, we cannot determine our children's spiritual future. But by our teaching, our instruction, we can direct their course. We can give them the, the greatest advantage. And so if the TV and, and the excuse of Jocelyn are keeping you from your higher calling, Lamb aside, get into the lives of your children with the word of God. Now, if you don't own a large caliber pistol or rifle, I do, and I would love to shoot your TV for you. <laughs> I just love the way they come to pieces and the, and the deliverance that comes with that. It's a freeing experience. So just bring the TVs up here, and I'll take care of them. Now, I, we have a TV, okay? Uh, it probably comes on, I don't know, Shandy, what do you, she's not even in here. I could lie to you, and there would be no accountability. She's in children's church. It, it's not, it, somebody gave us this massive TV, so it looks like it's a centerpiece of our home, but it rarely comes on, and um, it's just not a big thing for us. What we've tried to do is incorporate historical fiction. And uh, we've been reading tons of historical fiction in the evenings with our kids. We do most of our heavy devotion in the morning, but we read uh, Christian historical fiction at night and their adventures and things like that. And uh, Abby Churchill's read one. It's a good book, huh? Yeah, it's called The Hidden Hand. Anybody read that? The Hidden Hand? Yeah, it's very good. It's very good. We're reading, we finished that. We're reading The Gorilla Hunters now. 
And then uh, we're reading one of, it's uh, pioneering uh, Brazil. We've done all kinds of fun ones. I'm going to do, have you guys read The Princess Bride? I know you've seen the movie, but have you read the book? The book is 10 times better, so that's next on the list. I know it's not historical fiction. <laughs> and, and I will allegorize it into a Christian theme. I'll make it happen, but... Uh, <laughs> I, what I was getting at was bring your TVs if they're a distraction, and I'll take care of them. And I won't litter, I'll pick up all the garbage and make sure it gets to the dump. But I, it's important that we understand that if we demonstrate, men especially, the habit of watching TV at the expense of our family, we will reproduce that custom in our boys. They will be TV watchers at the expense of their children. And what we'll do is we'll teach our daughters to be content with their future husband who is distracted, absent, and disengaged. We are training our children, whether it's intentional or otherwise. So we need to be careful how it is that we're training our kids. But I believe if you diligently resist that temptation and you give that energy, that time to your family, you will reproduce that in their lives, in their future parenting, and in their marriages. I believe that. Okay. You can break a destructive habit and change a generational trend for the glory of God, for the good of your kids. Okay. Now, if you haven't a clue how to disciple your children in the faith on a daily basis, you're exactly where all of us started. And all of us had to humble ourselves and seek instruction from others. So, if that's you, be a man, and let's get it done. Okay. There are many men in this church that would love to meet with you in that regard and point you in the right direction, okay? If you want to come see me, I'll point you in their direction. You can email me, call me, whatever. This is an area, dads, that I want you to succeed in more than anything else, okay? Let's do it. You know, there's another problem that I've seen with fathers is they're highly invested in their children, but it's for sports and activities, and what you'll do is, um, if that rather takes the place of discipleship, it's not only shameful, but what you'll do is you'll disciple your kids in sports and activities rather than in Christ. And what will happen in the next generation or so is eventually Christ will be excluded and it will be all sports and activities. That is a very dangerous thing to exclude Christ. We need to prioritize Christ. He needs to have the preeminence in our home. And there are fun and practical and good ways to do that. Okay? And if you're like me and you have no imagination, you need the help of others to do it. Okay? And I, I like the help of others. Okay? Yeah. The things that Christ will judge us for is oftentimes not the things that we give our energy to. Yeah. All right, wives. <laughs> this is far more dangerous, by the way. <laughs> and again, I have no particular wife in mind. These are just purely scenarios. What weight are you holding on to that keeps you from running with endurance 
for the glory of God? Are you on social media all day? And I could probably sound ridiculous saying this, but do you play Candy Crush all day? Is that even a game anymore? Yeah. Do you give your, your time, your energy to these things as your little ones beg for your attention, and then the duties of your home go neglected? Now, that too, by the way, is very instructive for your children. They might resent you for doing that, for giving yourself to your phone rather than to them, but they will likely do the same when they get older. They'll stare at their phone and neglect their little ones. And your homemaking habits will also be passed down to them, and it will be a generational curse to everyone. It's passed down. What do we say that more is caught than taught? Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with appropriate content and conversation on social media, but when it takes away from the high calling, the high calling of motherhood, it's shameful. And again, I, I think I can hear murmuring potentially. I know how tired you are and how you need a break from the little people and their demands. But whatever did mothers do before the advent of social media? What did they do? And, you know, I know it's stressful. I, I know little children are demanding and messy and messy and demanding and, and on and on and on the list goes. I, I've, I have actually filled my wife's shoes a number of times uh, at weeks at a time and even a month or more, you know, schooling and cleaning and laundry and the rest. I hate laundry. <laughs> it's hard work like a lot of other things, like a lot of other things. But trying to rest your mind by way of social media, it's, right, it's like trying to diet yourself with Twinkies before you run a marathon. You can't run on that stuff. It's not good for you. It's destructive to your relationship with your children. It, it distracts you from your Christian duties as a wife, a mother, a homemaker. And it is totally unfulfilling. Is that true? It's totally unfulfilling. Sure, you might not entertain gossip or slander government officials like most people on those platforms, but you're still absent from the real world and from those who need you. Now, I understand something in all of this. Just as men have been left in the dark when it comes to being a father and a husband, women have been fed a bunch of lies from our culture about being a wife and a mother. It's no longer a venerated position in our culture. But in God's economy, it is extremely high. Okay. And his perspective should be the one that is honored. The woman who redefines herself according to our culture's definition of womanhood no longer enjoys the dignity that God endowed her with. She is more selfish, she is more vain than ever, and her life is void of meaning and purpose. It's void. But the woman who looks to Christ for meaning will discover her calling. And when she fulfills her calling, she will experience meaning. I know this to be true. It's the same for fathers. And ask God to fulfill you in your calling, and you'll find rest. Ladies, mothers, it is his job to keep you from growing weary in well-doing. It's his job. Jesus said, take my yoke, didn't he? 
He said, cast all your cares upon me. Scripture after scripture. Yeah. Lay every weight aside and seek his face so that you can run. You can run well. Parents, we need to use our time with our families for redemptive purposes, for the honor of God. We need to regroup. We need to refocus. You know, life should revolve around the Lord in practical ways. It should. And it can happen. So anything that robs us of our endurance, even if that thing is innocent, it should be stripped away. Now, what about you single folks? This one is so much easier. You know, those were the days when I could really waste my time doing nothing of value and think that I was doing something important. I was a champion. <laughs> Psalm 25, 7 says, God, please do not remember the sins of my youth. Because when I wasn't doing something illegal, I was doing something worthless or foolish. Meaning was not the aim of my life. It was rebel without a cause. You met people like that. They're so enjoyable. <laughs> and the things that I desired were vain and they were useless. So what about you? What is it that you do or have? What relationships do you keep that hinder you from running? Relationships, oh my goodness. Yeah. Again, these are just scenarios. Um, I'm not picking on any one person but you know, I never got into video games much when I was younger, but I, I played them when I was super bored or because my friends were playing. I preferred my, my fly rod and my rifle and my backpack, just about anything. But gaming has become quite the ordeal because it's interesting, you can compete with people all over the world in real time and the graphics have become absolutely amazing. You can actually be playing here in Washington and cut your opponent's throat who's playing in Russia I hear it's super fun. You can fulfill your fantasy as an assassin without breaking any laws. The jokes aside, it's my understanding that there are all kinds of games that are totally nonviolent and have no illegal implications. Just no one plays them. It's true. I remember when I was in high school and the weather wasn't conducive for anything that was really fun, so we set out to conquer you know, Super Mario Brothers from the original Nintendo. <laughs> and when we finally did, I, I can't tell you the letdown we had afterwards. Even at that age, I was like, what did we just accomplish? For 20 seconds, we celebrated like we cured cancer. <laughs> but then we had nothing to show for our efforts. There was no reward, there was no cure, there was nothing of virtue. There was just nothing at all. We just wasted our day playing a game. It wasn't sinful necessarily. It was just utterly wasteful. It's like most college grads, they go to college for four years plus, they get a degree, go into debt, and never use their degree in the real world. <laughs> but they went to college, they really have nothing more than a degree in debt to show for their wasted time. But you're an American, it's a good thing you went to college, because that's part of the American dream. You know, if your time is consumed with nothing of real value, it's, it's time to lay it aside so you can do something meaningful for the glory of God. And I've heard of gaming as a ministry, just in case that gets tossed out there, but I think it's just like going to the bar and drinking beer while you evangelize. 
It's the whole theory that if you make Christianity relevant to the world, the world will get saved. But the only thing I've seen come out of it is compromise with the world. That's all I've seen. The, the unbelieving community doesn't need another trendy Christian who conforms to the world. What the world really needs is men and women of strong conviction with lives conformed to Christ's. If, if Pastor Chuck Smith could reach hippies on the beach wearing a suit and tie, obviously the theory of relevance is not that important. Okay. You've heard me say before that love is the hippest thing on the earth. That's how you win people. Love and truth. It's just not Christ that needs to be relevant to the culture. The culture is going to have to be relevant to Christ or it will be lost forever. Okay. And no one should ever think that the culture will bend to the faith if you're bending to the culture. It's just a win for the culture because they've just gotten another Christian to behave worldly. That's all it is. Okay. So lay that aside, whatever it is, and run with endurance. Don't waste your life. Now, the girls are like, I don't game or evangelize when I drink beer. Thanks for the confession. <laughs> but what is it that keeps you from sharing the faith with your unbelieving friends? What hinders you from serving the Lord? What is robbing you of endurance? Is it all the time spent socializing? Is it the time you spend on yourself, uh, gawking at boys, perhaps? I don't explain women very well. Okay. So it's a shot in the dark, whatever you do. But I know someone who does know women really well. David knew him too. And David pleaded with the Lord. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. So it may be true that I haven't addressed anything true about anyone in this room. But if you'll do what David did, the Lord is faithful to point that out to you, to address the weight that hinders you. In fact, he's probably already revealed that to you, and you just need to lay it aside. And I would encourage you, as you wrestle with that, don't look for justification for what so easily ensnares you. Don't try to justify it. Don't make excuses, okay? If it leads your affections and your priorities away from Christ, it needs to go, okay? It needs to go. As we began, Christ is determined to perfect you according to his grace. Perhaps you've adopted another definition of perfection, and I would say that we have as Americans. We've adopted a Western view of what it is to be complete or whole. But I don't see our society getting better with its ideals. But I do know that people that follow Christ, they're the ones that are fulfilled, okay? When they live for his glory. So if God is convicting you, I want you to agree with him. Say, Lord, you're right. And I really don't want to give it up. I don't want to lay it aside, but you're right. And so give me grace to drop the baggage so I can have endurance. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the kinds of sins that easily ensnare us and rob us of endurance, and that should be a real fun yeah. Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> 
For now, if, if you need prayer to, to drop a bad habit, something that's changed the course of your life, something that's diverting like a relationship, if you want prayer, encouragement, um, the elders and I would love to pray with you after the service, but I need to get you out of here pretty soon. So, and if you want to just come and be encouraged or whatever, if you want to talk, if you need counsel in that regard, um, John loves to do that. And uh, so anyway, please come up here. Let us minister to you. Please stand and we'll, we'll pray together. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. It's true, I could stand up here and really talk about nothing. Or we could talk about things that are real and actually do draw us away from you. And though we need to hear it, and, and these people don't need to hear it from me, they need to hear it by the conviction of your spirit because it'll be much more effective. And so, Lord, I pray that for myself and for everyone that can hear my voice, that, Lord, they would be honest with themselves as they ask you to search and know them and to point out anything in them that doesn't find your approval. And, Lord, that we would have the conviction to obey and that you would grant us grace to follow through. Lord, I pray for our fathers who have been duped by our culture, have been deceived by their own flesh. Lord, give them courage. Help them to be strong. Help them to be sober-minded in this regard so that they might glorify you as fathers, as husbands. Lord, I pray the same thing for our mothers as our culture has ravished the woman. Lord, I want our mothers to feel and experience the dignity that you created them with, the role that you've given them. And only within the confines of your design will they experience fulfillment. And Lord, for our young people, as they're so distracted with so many things that the world has for them, and some of it is, is really as innocent, but it's enough to take their eyes off you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant them your grace, help them to see it, the danger of it, and help them to, to run to you. Lord, help all of us to yield ourselves to your perfecting work. Help us, we pray. And Lord, I just pray for my church family for this week, that this week would be a good week for them to evaluate, to hear your voice, and to live for you with more conviction. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.